0: Kind of tired this morning. I got in uh, late last night from out of town. I was in Orange County, California, teaching Clarifying the Bible. Never been there before. Have you ever been to Newport Beach, California? Wow, huh? That is a beautiful, beautiful place. And the weather's not as good as it is here. <sighs> Man. But it's good to be home. Promise, right? (laughs) Uh, It's good to be back with my family, no doubt about that. Good to be back with church family. Good to see all of you here and to worship our Lord together. Uh, We begin a new series this morning through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, pull it up on your phone if you will. We'll be in Acts chapter 1 most of the time this morning. We're going to call this series The Way up a handful of times in the book. In Acts chapter 9, whenever Saul, who would become the apostle Paul, was seeking after Christians to persecute them, he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. After becoming a Christian and Paul on his Missionary journeys in Ephesus, a preaching ministry and some believing, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. In Acts 19, about about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Paul himself, but I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And after Paul gave his defense before Felix in Acts 24, but Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. So it's a little phrase that pops up again and again here in the book of Acts. And it seems to refer to the way of life of the Christian, a way of life of allegiance to Jesus Christ that shows itself in a new kind of life. And so, as we work our way through the book of Acts, may God give us grace to be men and women, young and old, who follow the way the way of allegiance to Christ and no other, the way of faithfulness to him in our lives, the way of proclamation of the gospel to the men, women, boys and girls here in our city, and even, as we will see, to the ends of the earth. Well, the book of Acts is the only historical sequel we have to the gospels, right? Right? If you're familiar with the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the first four books of the New Testament. They're called the Gospels. And they tell us of the birth, the life, ministry, teaching, miracles, ultimately rejection, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even his then ascension back into heaven. But then we ask the question, well, what happened after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven? And the book of Acts tells us. In fact, it is the sequel to, specifically, the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and it is a very full account of the life and times of Jesus Christ up until his ascension into heaven. And then Luke wrote the book of Acts, which is the sequel. He picks up in Acts chapter 1, just where he left off in Luke 24, He addresses the Gospel of Luke to a man named Theophilus. He addresses the book of Acts to a man named Theophilus. And so Luke picks up in Acts right where he left off in Luke. What happened after Jesus ascended into heaven? And in a few words, what happened is he ascended, sent his Holy Spirit to fill the lives of his people, and they in faithfulness to him began to proclaim him throughout the first century Mediterranean world. The book is called Acts, Actions, and there's been, if you will, friendly debate through the centuries as to the best title for the work. Is it the Acts of the Apostles? That's how we most generally hear about it. I'm not so sure if that's the best description of the book. We, we, you do get a lot on Peter, and you do get a lot on Paul, but the other apostles, not much at all. And you also get a lot of other action by those who aren't necessarily a part of the 12. Guys like Stephen and Philip and Barnabas and faithful, nameless men and women who follow the way. So I'm not so sure the Acts of the Apostles is best. Some call it the acts of the Holy Spirit. That's not bad, because that is a major theme of this book. Jesus ascends, then in Acts chapter 2, He sends His Holy Spirit who fills His people and empowers them for a life of ministry, and so the acts of the Holy Spirit is not bad. Some call it the acts of the risen Christ, we'll see that here in just a minute, that Luke says that the Gospel of Luke was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. And by implication, this book of Acts is going to be about all that Jesus continues to do and teach. So the Acts of the Risen Lord. It's not bad. Maybe the longest title might be the best. Because no doubt Jesus is in Risen and alive and at work. And no doubt the Holy Spirit is filling His people and empowering the people of God. But God the Father is initiating it all. And so, as one said, maybe the best title would be the Acts of God the Father through His Son Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in the lives of His people our great and our sovereign God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of His Spirit in the lives of His people. But none of us will remember that, so let's just call it the book of Acts and look at the way of following Him. When you think about the book and it's big picture. Um, Some have looked at it biographically. I'm not keen to this at all. Chapters 1 to 12, Peter. Chapters 13 to 28, Paul. And that's not a terrible way to think about the book. There certainly is an emphasis on Peter's ministry in the first half and Paul's in the second. The most popular way to look at the book is taken off of chapter 1, verse 8, and Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And so some see that as an outline of the book. Chapters 1 to 7, the gospel goes to Jerusalem. 8 to 12, to Judea, which is the area surrounding Jerusalem. Samaria, even to Galilee. And then 13 to 28, through the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, it goes to the remotest parts of the earth, the first century Mediterranean world. That's a good way to think about the book. I briefly want to show you how I think Paul, Luke, laid out the book. He gives us some progress reports along the way. I tried to put some slides together, but I goofed them so maybe next week. But there's seven major sections to this book, and it is each one is summarized by Luke with a progress report. You'll quickly see what I mean. If you'd like to take notes, great. If not, don't worry about it. But chapter 1, 1 through 247 is the birth of the church in Jerusalem. Jesus is alive. He's giving final instructions to his disciples. They say to him, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Israel says, that's not for you to know. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, samaria remotest parts of the earth. He then ascends into heaven. They go back to Jerusalem and they pray. And in Acts chapter 2, just like he promised, the Holy Spirit of God comes to fill his people. Peter preaches, 3,000 people believe, and we are off and running. And this is wonderful. And at the end of that section in 247... And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. There's our progress report, number one. Then in chapter 3, 1 through 6, 7, we see the gospel expand within Jerusalem. Peter and John heal a lame man and the crowds come running and Peter begins to preach to them. And they're listening closely and the authorities in Jerusalem, the religious authorities, didn't like that too much. They arrested Peter and John and they said, in whose name did you heal this man? said, in the name of Jesus, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. They conferred together and they came back to him and said, you can't preach in this name anymore. And they said, hey, uh, you be the judge. We have to obey God rather than men. They said, you better not or else. And they let him go. And Peter and John went back to their friends and said, let's pray. And they prayed for courage and God answered their prayer. And they continued to proclaim Christ in Jerusalem so much so, the authorities arrested them again, brought them in and said, we told you to quit preaching in this name, and yet you have filled this city with your teaching. And they said, well, we told you we had to obey God rather than men. And This time they flogged them, they beat them and released them. And they went out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. And in chapter 6, verse 7, at the end of this section... Luke tells us something interesting. The word of God kept on spreading. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Wow. So it was birthed in Jerusalem, 1-1 to 247. And then 3-1 to 6-7, it expanded within Jerusalem. You filled this city with this teaching. Even some of the priests have believed. And now... From 6.8 to the end of the book, we're going to begin to extend outside of Jerusalem. In 6.8 down to 9.31, we're going to extend into Judea and into Samaria. It's going to be the story of three men, really. Stephen, Philip, and Saul. Stephen will preach a sermon of a God who's never been tied to any one place a God who has always been with his people wherever they go. It was a foretaste of what was coming. Well, they killed him. He said some other things they didn't like, and they stoned him to death. Stephen was the first martyr, the first to give his life and faithfulness to Jesus. And as a result of that, persecution began to heat up in Jerusalem, and many of the Christians fled into Judea, in the surrounding regions, and as they did, they proclaimed Christ. One of them was Philip in chapter 8. He went to Samaria, the hated Samaritans, half Jewish, half Assyrians, worshipped at Mount Gerizim while we worship at Jerusalem. Don't think the same as the Jewish people about God's scriptures. Lots of division, 700 years of division. And Philip goes and takes the gospel to them, preaches, and they believe. Peter and John go down to see it, and they say, wow, this is great. And on their way back to Jerusalem, they're stopping in Samaritan villages telling people about Jesus. In chapter 9, Saul, the enemy of the gospel, gets converted. And Jesus says, you're going to take it even further. You're going to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. When we get to the end of this section in 931, Luke gives us a progress report. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. 9.32 to 12.24, we're going to extend even further, way up north to Antioch. This will be really the story of Peter. Peter has this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with these animals, and he's told in the vision to kill and eat. Peter says, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, what I've considered clean, don't you consider unclean. And Peter's, and God did it, showed it to him again, and he's scratching his head, and God showed it to him again. With Peter, it always takes three times. And he got it. Because a man showed up at his house and said, hey, I'm looking for you. My boss, Cornelius, a Gentile, not Jewish, not even Samaritan, half Jewish. He's a Gentile. He had a vision to come and find you. And so Peter and his Jewish friends go to Cornelius, the Gentile's house, and they proclaim Christ to them. And the Gentiles believe and the Holy Spirit comes upon them the Gentiles also, Gentiles also, Gentiles also, that's the key phrase. And the leadership in Jerusalem is not so sure about it. In chapter 11, they call Paul in, Peter in, and say, what are you doing going to a Gentile's house? He said, let me tell you what happened. I had this vision, blah, 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 I preach, And they believed, just like us. And in Acts chapter 11, they rejoiced. That God was granting salvation to the Gentiles also. In the very next paragraph, a church is planted way up north in Antioch, made up of Jews and Gentiles together in one body. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And at the end of that section... In 12.24, Luke gives a progress report, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. In 12.25 to 16.5, we're going further now. It was birthed in Jerusalem, expanded in Jerusalem, extended to Judea and Samaria, extended all the way to Antioch, and now, if you're your way, it's going to go into Asia Minor. Paul and Barnabas and some leaders are going to be praying at the church in Antioch and fasting, and the Holy Spirit's going to set apart Paul and Barnabas for a new work. And they're going to take the gospel to the island of Cyprus, and they're going to go into Asia Minor, into Pisidia, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, into these barbaric places, if you will. And they're going to proclaim Christ and get stoned nearly to death, But they're going to lead people to Jesus and plant churches. They're going to come back thrilled at what God is doing among the Gentiles. And in 16.5, Luke sums it up. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. In 16.6 to 19.20, we're going to go even further. We're going to take the gospel that has been birthed in Jerusalem, expanded in Jerusalem, extended to Judea and Samaria, to Antioch and Asia Minor, and we're going to go all around the Aegean Sea. And Paul, on this missionary journey, along with Silas and Timothy and Luke, is going to take the gospel to Philippi and lead Lydia to faith. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken by Paul and He's going to lead a slave girl to faith in Christ. He's going to get thrown in prison and lead the Philippian jailer and his family to Christ. He'll go on to Thessalonica. And there will be much opposition in Thessalonica, but he will stand tall and preach Christ and people will believe and a church will be planted. He'll go to Berea, the noble-minded Bereans who search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. and Many will believe the church will be planted, and down to Athens, and you'll see all of these idols, and all of this worship, but no worship of King Jesus. And one of their idols will say, to an unknown God, just in case they missed one, Paul will have an opportunity, and he will say, let me tell you about the God you do not know. You'll preach Christ. Few will believe and a church will be planted in Antioch or in um, Athens, I'm sorry. From Athens down to Corinth. And he'll come, he says, in fear and in trembling. And Jesus will have to come to him and say, do not be afraid. I have many people in this city. And Paul will spend 18 months there establishing a church. Later, he will go back to Jerusalem and then back to Ephesus, which is on the Aegean Sea as well. He'll spend two years there. Opening up, I call it the Ephesus Institute. Two years of discipleship and sending out church planters all throughout Asia Minor. At the end of that section, having, he would say in the book of Romans, that he had fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. And that his work in this area was now done. At the end of this section, 19.20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. There's our progress report. And then the next verse, verse 21, now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in spirit to go to Jerusalem after he'd passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So now we're going even further. 1921 to 2831, the end of the book, we watch the Apostle Paul go through some ups and downs, but eventually reach Rome and there proclaim Christ. And we're not sure, but some feel strongly that he even proclaimed Christ to Nero. In a word... The book of Acts is proclamation. It's the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We can do it quickly, at least I hope. I want to show you four things that jump out at me. And we'll be done for this morning. The first is this. Remember... That Jesus is still at work. Remember that Jesus is still at work. I think sometimes in my own life, maybe yours, we can think differently about this. We are very keen to look back to the birth, life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And well, we should. Huh? So fundamental to our faith, so essential. His holy life and His substitutionary death and His bodily resurrection. And we are inclined to look forward to that day when He will come again in great power and glory to make all things right and establish His rule over all the earth. We look back. We look forward. I don't know. Sometimes maybe we think, you know, Jesus right now He's sitting in heaven, he's got his feet kicked up, maybe got them crossed, hands behind his deal, you know. And he's just waiting on the word from the Father. Hey, time to go back. Oh, okay. Not at all. Jesus is exalted. The language of the Scripture is to the Father's right hand. The right hand is a place of authority. Many places in the New Testament, he sat down at his father's right hand. The imagery is that his work of redemption is finished. But with that language, we're not meant to think that he's up there drinking iced tea, chilling until the second coming. No, he is alive, he is reigning, he is ruling. He is pouring out His Spirit on those who believe He is, in the words of Paul, filling all in all. He is praying for His people. He stands as the head of His church. In verse 1, Luke says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, if you'd like to take notes in your Bible, write the Gospel of Luke. The first account, or the former account, I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And again, the implication is this book will be all about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Jesus is not asleep in heaven. He's not taking a break. He's not simply chilling out until God tells him it's time to return. He continues to do his work. Through by his Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. Maybe one implication for us this morning is simply this if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, friends, Jesus died upon a cross some 2,000 years ago, but he rose from the dead and he is alive. He is alive and he can change your life. Here's another imagery. He I can't point you to a verse other than maybe a whole theology of the New Testament. He stands with open arms to any and to every sinner and all of us are. Who will humbly come to him. He can forgive you of your sins. He can reconcile you back to God. He can adopt you into the family whereby you are loved by him. He can give you his Holy Spirit, his very presence in your life. And he can give you the assurance that you will be with him forevermore. Jesus is still at work. The second that pops us off the pages at me in these verses is that you and I need to be careful with our self reliant inclinations. We're going to see this theme again throughout the book, and so we won't spend much time. Let me read up to it. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles through whom he had had chosen. We'll see those orders in just a minute. To these also, he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So Jesus after his resurrection from the dead and before he ascended back to the Father, was spending time with his disciples and teaching them concerning the kingdom of God and giving them orders, answering their questions. Verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What we're going to see is Jesus, in a few verses, is going to ascend into heaven. But his, part of his orders to them is, go to Jerusalem and wait. Shouldn't we get about the business of being witnesses for you? Shouldn't we get about the business of proclaiming your name in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, in the remotest parts of the earth? Nope. Not until you have the requisite power to do so. Don't you move one iota. You wait until the promise of the Father. Gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. And we'll see this next week. They obey. They go back to Jerusalem and they wait. And while they wait, they pray. And in Acts chapter 2, Jesus' promise is fulfilled and the Holy Spirit comes. And once He comes, they go. And they begin to proclaim Christ. Christ. Well, for those of us who know Jesus, we have the Spirit. And there's no sense waiting on our part other than, I think, to draw the, the lesson here that apart from Christ and the power of His Spirit, you and I are absolutely impotent when it comes to the things of God. Are we not? Jesus said, abide in me for apart from me, you can do nothing. And so while all of us who know Christ now have the Holy Spirit, and there's a sense in which there is meant to be no waiting for us, the Spirit has been given, I think this is a good reminder, though, to always stay humble, to always stay dependent, to always stay prayerful, And to say, oh, God, apart from your help, apart from your wisdom and your power, I can't do it. Some of you have been around Redeemer. You've heard me teach on Aptat before. That whenever you and I are faced with a temptation to resist or a duty, if you will, to fulfill, Aptat is a good practice. Aptat, A, admit that you cannot do it without Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So admit, Lord, to resist them to this temptation or to do what you're calling me to do, to love my wife, to, to encourage my kids, to, to whatever it might be. Admit, Lord, I can't do it without you. P, pray, oh God, help me. I can't do it without your strength. I'm praying that you will give me the strength. Help me. T, trust in his promises to be with you and to help you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. A, act. Resist the temptation. Do what God is calling you to do. And then T, thank him that he gave you the desire to obey him and he gave you the power to obey him. And so let's remember that part of the way, part of this lifestyle of following Jesus is one of humble dependence upon him to realize in and of myself, I, am, I have nothing to bring to the table in the noble cause of Christ. But by the power of his spirit in humble dependence upon him, who knows what he might do in and through our lives. Number three, this one's kind of fun. While, and here's the way I'm saying it. While curious about eschatology, so what's eschatology? That's the study of the end times. Let's be consumed with the mission. In verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time You're restoring the kingdom to Israel? We can get to wondering about times, can't we? The disciples were wondering, Their expectation as Jewish men was that the Messiah was going to come, defeat the Romans, establish His kingdom, and they were going to share in it, and He was going to reign forevermore. And yet the crucifixion kind of threw them off. Michael Card wrote a song years ago, The seers and the prophets had foretold it long ago that the long-awaited one would make men stumble. They were looking for a king to conquer and to kill. Who would have ever thought he'd be so meek and humble? But now that Jesus was alive again, their hopes were restored. Is it it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel and fulfill all of the promises made to your people? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. I I read verse 8, but here's what I want you to know. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Eschatology is a major portion of the New Testament, major portion of the Bible. It is an important study. But certainly we can get so curious about it that it can sometimes distract us. When is Jesus going to return? What will it look like? Is there a tribulation to come? Will the church be raptured before the tribulation or have to endure it? Was the Antichrist a person who arose in the first century? Or was that just a type of what is to come, that there is going to be an Antichrist to come in the future? Will Jesus Christ come and establish his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth? Or are we already in the kingdom in some sense? And so when he comes, all kinds of different questions, right? we like to say around here, some of us are premillennial, some of us are amillennial. Not many of us at all, maybe postmillennial, probably all of us are panmillennial. It'll all pan out in the end, Right? But we're all curious about these things. We just finished a men's Bible study on Friday mornings in 2 Thessalonians, talking about the Antichrist and the day of the Lord. One of the guys was saying, let's do the book of Revelation. And I'm tempted, Justin, but probably not. All right. I always tell him, you tell me what the details mean and I'll teach it. Now that's a loaded statement. You tell me what the details mean and I'll teach it. The details can be hard in the book of Revelation. The big idea is real easy. Jesus Christ is coming back in great power and glory. And those who know him by his grace will spend eternity with him. But those who have refused his mercies will sadly spend eternity apart from him forever forever. Jesus wants us to be consumed with a mission. To be his witnesses. To live faithful lives in a watching world. And when doors are open, to tell of the great love of God in Jesus Christ. Finally, for you and me to consider deeply that Christ is coming back. It can be so cliche to us. So many of us have heard it so many times. Oh, um, yeah, Jesus coming back again. You know, it's just part of the thing. Verse nine. After he had said these things. He was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received Him out of their sight. There's the ascension. Having given His final instructions. And just to note, at the end of Matthew, at the end of Mark, at the end of Luke, and the end of John, and here at the beginning of Acts, it's essentially all the same. Jesus ends with, I want you to be a people on mission. And then He ascends. The most famous is what? The Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Those final instructions and then he ascends. And in verse 10, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, you can imagine, right? Wow. they'd never seen anything like that. Two men in white clothing stood beside them. These are angels. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? You want to say, Because we've never seen this before. <laughs> men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. He will come again it's time to go Christ is still at work church let's be careful of our self-reliance and let's always seek him and draw upon his strength as he's pleased to give it let's be consumed about the mission we talk of worship gatherings discipleship groups service teams, and mission circles. That's where it all leads, is that you and I would live on mission with Jesus in your circle where you live, work, play, and passion. In our circle, this geography right around our church and the world. That God would use us to play a little part, to play a big part in what He's doing around the world. And let's live with a sense of hope and accountability. I think that may be what's going on here with these angels. He's going. Wow. Hey guys, why are you looking up into the sky? He's going to come again. New Testament, the idea of the second coming of Christ is always a hope-giving thing to the people of God. But it's also an accountability kind of thing. He's going to come again. Let me read you a verse and then we'll close in prayer in Second Peter chapter 3. No need to turn there. I'll read it. And we'll be done. But the day of the Lord, this is when He will come again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So let's take note of that as we seek to build our empires here upon the earth. The heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Man, But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us, the brothers and sisters here at Redeemer Community Church, to live in light of the mission that we've been given and the fact that you will come again. Think of Paul who said of all of God's people we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Lord, we know that our eternal salvation will not be based upon the works which we have performed, but there will be some sense of a judgment. We will all stand before you. May we, by your grace, live in light of these massive truths of our Savior who came and lived and died and rose, our Savior who is alive and well in heaven right now, reigning and ruling, directing, empowering, our Savior who will one day come again. A new heavens, a new earth where righteousness dwells. Please find us, as Peter says here, diligent in the meantime we'll pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here today and you need any help, in particular spiritually, just in your relationship with God, please don't leave here today without coming to grab me or one of our leaders. We would love to help you. You are loved. Have a wonderful week.